0: What, in addition to the right equipment, does it take for the job of film editing? Welcome to The Cutting Room, the official podcast of AOTG.com. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell, and this week we're going to be interviewing Stephen Rosenblum. And we're going to be discussing with him his work on the film Birth of a Nation. If you haven't seen the film yet, go out and check it out. It's been getting great reviews. And it was also a huge hit at Sundance this year. If you enjoy this podcast, make sure to let us know via Twitter at AOTG Network on Facebook, facebook.com slash AOTG Network. Or, of course, you can get us via email, info at AOTG.com. With all that said, here's my interview with Stephen Rosenblum. So how, how did you get involved with this project? How did you get brought on?
1: Well, my agent called me and um, he said, you know, this guy called, he's doing this podcast uh, project called Birth of a Nation it's about Nat Turner and I said to him I'll do it he said but they have no money I said well, okay well send me the script <laughs> because it's you know I'm familiar with the Nat Turner story and I'm a history major and I especially American history especially the civil war era you know so I'm real familiar with all that stuff and I read the script and I really really liked it and um just immediately. So great read. And, uh, you know, what's not to like it expresses my politics. I mean, it's really, really good, but they have no money. And, <laughs> and literally the next, the next night, I'm still just thinking about it. And I get a call on the phone. It's Nate. And Nate's like, listen, I really want you to do this movie. <laughs> and, and he said, I know you don't know me, but you know this is how I am. I just, just, and we had a conversation for about an hour, and it was just really wonderful. And got off the phone, uh, and I'm thinking, God, I really want to do this movie. There's no money. I'm working on something. I am about to start something end of August or September. I don't even know what times I got. Nate has just told me, he says, I don't care what time period you have open. I'll take you for as long as you've got. Whatever it is, you have to get off fine, but I want you to do the movie as long as you can. I was talking to my wife. I said, I don't know what to do. You know, it's like I really was looking for a little time off, and, uh, uh, but they have no money, and, uh, but I really like this material. And she looked at me and said, how often do you read a script that you really like? And I, of course, was blank because it's rare. And she said, so do the movie and forget about the money and just do it. I said, okay, <laughs> and I did it. I just said to Nate, I, I can be on it until I have to leave on September 3rd, I can be on it till September 1st, whatever it was, and uh, that's what we did. I was only on it for 10 or 12 weeks. I got into a more than a cut. I did a cut on my own, uh, then Nate came in and we worked together literally every day, which included, uh, you know, long discussion every day about the world uh, as well as cutting and real collaboration, meaning Nate would say, you know, <laughs> I want to try this, this, and this. Working with Nate, it was an eye opening experience on many, many levels. He said, Look, we come from different worlds, and there's so much bias that you're not even aware of. And he says, and I have it too, but you have specifically a bias of middle-class white bias that you're not even really aware of. For example, we had a screening, and um, after the screening, was at William Morris. And they said, you know, I only invited two African-Americans. And and I said, yeah, I didn't even notice. And he said, no, of course not. I was like, oh, okay, I see, I get it. When we came to cutting material, Similarly, you know the dinner table scene right the uh, <laughs> yeah, that 's a big scene you know, and it 's a big drama about you know as I showed it to him, Mike out of it was a drama about this white plantation owner who was trying to get back on his feet and um, be a power in the community again and so he could have some money, and so his family would have a place to live in and wouldn 't go to ruin and blah 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 and Nate looked at me and said, "You know I should have told you this, but I really want to play this entire scene from the point of view of the help." <laughs> it's like duh of course that's what the movie's about I mean you know as an editor sometimes you go right to the drama but the subtext is actually the drama and in this case that was the case and so I I constantly was trying to to be aware of my own hidden prejudices and and biases including in how you tell the story and what the real goal of of the film is and then Nate was just really instrumental in reminding me how that works and it just reinforced stuff I had learned as an assistant when I was coming up and I remember cutting a scene for a, an editor and uh, with, it was a scene where Richard Pryor was a, a veteran returned from Vietnam and found that his wife had left him and uh, it's called some kind of hero he's out on a step watching this family two kids playing with the mother and there's his wife coming down the, down the street and I cut the scene and Chris Greenberry who was the editor said uh, he looked at it and said huh this is a scene about a guy watching a family walking in the street. I want to see a scene about a guy who sees his wife and understands what he's lost. You go, okay, these are, you know, these are building blocks of how you look at material and and, um, put it together.
0: (laughs) You mentioned that you had done your first cut by yourself. And I'd seen in a couple of articles that I read that Nate gave you sort of that freedom for the first cut and then worked with you closely. So how much did the perspective change? How did you go about working the footage so that it comes from the perspective of, uh, of the the slaves as opposed to the owners?
1: That scene in particular, it's, it's actually really, really easy. Every time the slaves came into the room to serve, rather than see what people were talking about around the table, we watched the people serve. You still hear stuff that's going on, but it, it just puts the, the difference in the lives of the two classes becomes more apparent by the lack of ability of the hidden, quiet, unseen class to even speak their desires. And that alone is enough for the scene to play. Uh, That's what the power of the scene is. And I'm not even sure it's the most successful scene in the movie. I know it isn't for varieties of reasons, but it still functions really, really well. When Nate gets to do the blessing at that scene. It's the first time the help gets to speak. And what he says is powerful, really, really powerful, much more powerful than anything that came before. So it, has a, it just has a structure that plays, I think, in a really, really terrific way. So that's, you know, the way that happens. (laughs) And that's about buildup too. It's like you you see all this stuff going on and servants don't say a word and one guy plays the violin or the fiddle. And it's just, uh, you know, to me, movies are that. They're actually more about visuals and music and less about what is being said because what is being said is only often a component You know, as opposed to the component. Uh, I I don't like movies that are cut strictly for dialogue because all of a sudden you're losing a lot of behavior and the behavior is really what sells the scene and what makes characters worthwhile and why you like them and why you don't.
0: Well, and I also noticed throughout the movie, for the most part, we're only on extreme close-ups of the face of the slaves and not the owners. So we're almost always really tight on them mm-hmm. and then seeing their POV as opposed to that of the other people in the scene or
1: the the uh, owners you know it's funny i hadn't thought of it in those terms but you know <laughs> when i cut i try to cut intuitively i don't i don't really overthink it strangely <laughs> this feels right to me so i do it uh, and i don't i don't question the instinct because the instinct always seems to have a much more thought behind it than i'm actually thinking <laughs> So, uh, you know, I don't know if it's true or not true, but I've always been very comfortable with my instincts on on where is the power of a scene. Without being too specific because I can't be, I often like conversation where the angles aren't matched. I like very often when you can throw a scene to somebody not by where the dialogue is coming from, whether it's them or the other person, but by the size of uh, the shot for one or the other person. And I like mismatched conversation quite a lot. I've
0: read in many places that Nate's a perfectionist and is very obsessed with making sure everything's perfect. So with such a tight deadlines for you before you left, how did you work with him to make sure you got him what he wanted, but that you weren't sort of, I guess, ending up spending too much time on, on one area or the other?
1: Huh. I never actually, uh, I don't actually have that knowledge of him as being any different than I am. So that was, you know, perfection was not really an issue. We were always on the same wavelength, talking about what to do, trying different things. He likes to experiment quite a lot, as do I. So that was never an issue. We just kept on going, kept on going, till we were happy with the sequence. We didn't put it away unless we were happy. Now, it doesn't mean we didn't come back to it a week later or two weeks later and we do it, yeah. but we never put it away unless we were happy. And that meant a lot of stuff. I, now, you know, he would say, let's try this. And I'd say, wait, let me do this and say, fine, but what if we do this? And that's just how we worked. It was a very easy working relationship because everything he said made sense. In my opinion, the director is entitled to make things better or make things different. That's his role. He just can't make things worse and never made things worse. Sometimes we try things that were worse because it was a good idea that wasn't working. And I have the same kinds of ideas, but we never left it there. We always went to something that worked better. And that was the goal. And it was
0: common. That's interesting because that means you guys really connected. Like he said, he felt that he was reaching his perfectionist sort of peak in editing <laughs> and finding that. When did he say perm- that? <laughs> uh, at Sundance. But I think he was saying, like, like I don't think he was saying he was having a bad time. I think he was becoming, you know, falling in love
1: in the editing process. Yeah, he's a very quick, quick learner. I couldn't go to Sundance because I was actually in Spain. And uh, the producer of this film, one of the producers, Ralph Winter, called me from Sundance to say, he said, your film is blowing up here. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, what? You know, and it was just really wonderful to hear. But no, Nathan, you know, Nate, uh, we, we love working with each other. I, right? you know, if he wants to do another film, I'm happy to sign on. I don't have to, I don't even have to read it. I'll just sign on, you know, uh, um, he's, he's truly, his learning curve is spectacular. His ideas are really good. You know, people forget, you know, and especially with the, with the somewhat underperforming amount, it, truthfully, it's not even an underperforming movie. It only costs $10 million to make. It's it's just that Fox put so much money into it that it feels underperforming. It's his first movie. I don't think he's ever directed really anything. And the uh, ambition and the scope of what he accomplished on that time frame and that budget, it's just, to me, it's magnificent uh, on that level. I don't even feel like it's underperforming, <laughs> but people have that in their heads that it is. Well, it's crazy when you think
0: about the budget and twenty seven days and it's a period piece.
1: <laughs> it's <just> unbelievable, right? <laughs> yes. So I've been talking about, you know, just he often didn't have time to turn the camera around and shoot the other direction. So, you know, it just creates issues that you have to deal with. How would you deal with that if a scene wasn't didn't have its coverage? Well, you you know, like the scene where he where they come in to the one plantation, the guy with the dogs. Until the guy comes with the dogs, when Nate pulls in Army Hammer gets out of the wagon, goes up to the door. Uh, Nate's coming out of the, the wagon and starts to do stuff with his horse, well, a lot of which I cut out. That's really like two angles of one shot. You know what I mean? There's no coverage there. And you just try to find ways to cut it so that you can get rid of all the downtime and keep the scene intact. And, you know, the scene works pretty well. Would it work better if he could have shot it with coverage? Yes, it would have because you would have had pieces that go together that make the cuts almost invisible because they're smooth and they tell you where you want to be. But there's just no time. You get so little time to shoot so much film. You just say, okay, how do we make this? How can we cut the film? Even though it's a one essentially, how do you cut it? And you can, you just can.
0: Now you've brought up the scene where with the dogs and it gets a little more gruesome into that scene. I would love to know, how do you tackle a scene where it's so gruesome and hard to watch? Like, where do you draw the line? Because you don't want to, people to sort of get up and get frustrated or leave because they're grossed out, but you also want to make sure that you're telling people how it was, or you're showing
1: people how it was. When I started getting dailies from Nate, I was finishing uh, Bloodfather. Do you know that was a Mel Gibson? Mm -hmm. It it came out uh, this year. Didn't do any business, but he got universally great reviews because Mel's great in it. But I was working on Bloodfather, and I had had to recap the whole picture because it, it just really wasn't playing. But I had this one afternoon where it was I just had time, and uh, I said, "Okay, I'm going to cut something from <laughs> from Birth of a Nation because I haven't cut anything yet." And what would I like to cut? Now I haven't cut anything yet, and I said, "I think I'll cut the uh, what I call the dental scene," <laughs> yeah. and um, you know. And so I sat down to cut it, and the thing about those kinds of scenes is, like all good editing, it's it's mostly visuals and what to me feels like music, although in this case it was the rhythm of the chisel hitting the teeth so it took me a while to get that rhythm to function properly but if you actually just listen to the sound of the chisel hitting the teeth you'll hear it don't even watch the scene you'll hear the there's sort of a it's rhythmic and then it and then it bothers you yeah you know it's it's just that sound that was the hard part of the scene the, the thing to do we only have they only shot one piece of actually maybe two of a tooth getting knocked out. Mm-hmm. so the the key thing is to just do it early in the scene because once you've seen it, you hear that noise, you see it in your head a million times <laughs> yes. so you, you just you just want to get that out of the way so that then people it's like a, it's like that lasts for the whole movie yeah. Scene. Um, you know, it it just is so I don't wanna look at that. I had to tell my wife and we went to see the uh a screening of it, the first screening I was gonna see with the finished product. I said, Debbie, when I when the guy goes to the shed to get the tool, uh, close your eyes. <laughs> 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 and you know, and that's what she did because she's very she very much doesn't like violence and but it's it's a really hard scene. It's a really hard scene to watch and it's amazingly redeemed by the speech he gives afterwards, I think, which to me is might be the high point of the movie because it's just so powerful. To me, that's a you know, and that was the first thing I cut for him. And then I called him, said I'm sending you this. And he called me when he saw it. and He said I'm you know, I don't know what to say. I'm speechless. I said, I, I said I think you've got something special here. So, um, <laughs> and that was you know, that was it. From that point on, when I had time, I cut. And then all of a sudden, I was
0: working on it full time. I saw uh, in in. In one of the interviews I read that Ed Zwick suggested to Nate a alternating narrative rhythm for the film. I was wondering if you had sort of explained to me what, what he meant by that and how you, you approach tackling that.
1: What he meant by that, you know, you cannot string together like three scenes which have the same sort of expositional rhythm. You have to change rhythm from scene to scene so audiences don't get complacent and a little bored and feel like it's a little dull and nate of course was like huh let me write that down because whenever nate whenever you tell nate something (laughs) he'll be writing down stuff less and less when i was on the phone he'd say hold on a second i want to write that down but he took it to heart and the the one thing when i was doing my cut i there the the area of the film where the eclipse occurs and and that whole section of stuff where they're getting ready for whatever is gonna be their their goal in life. Um that's their goal in life, they're getting ready for whatever they're I took there were there were like the uh, house slave there was a scene where the house slave came to talk to Nate and there was that stuff and there was working on the cotton and there was a bunch of stuff and I, I just felt it was not the right time for exposition. You know, what are you doing? Why are you going to who do you think you are leading this uprising kind of stuff from the house slave? And I, so I montaged it. I, I just decided to make a nonlinear montage using the house slave's speech and his conversation with Nate as the spine. And I, I really like that kind of montage because it ties together things in an emotional way as opposed to in a linear way. I tend not to want to be linear often. I tend to like that stuff. Now, sometimes directors don't like it and sometimes it's, it feels sort of, too modern. Mm-hmm. Uh, and yet Nate was never concerned with it, anything feeling too modern. In fact, the, the movie actually feels modern, not only in the inclusion of the song at the uh, at the end. It, it all tends to give the movie a, a life force that I really like. So that's an example of taking three expositional scenes, and also it's late in the movie for exposition, you want to get on with whatever is going to happen, and making it feel of a piece. And um, Nate, of course, you know, I was always wondering what he was going to say about that when we were working our way through the picture because he, uh, we were just working in order. And when we got to that section, he said, uh, you know, I always really liked this. I thought it was a really uh, a good way to overcome some of the problems we were going to have if we kept those scenes in order. I was like, <laughs> oh, thanks, because I, you know, I was thinking, oh, what am I going to have to do here? You know, sometimes that kind of work of taking all that apart leads to the same realization, but you've just done all the work again. <laughs> so um, I was real happy about that. That changed a little bit when later down the line when I was gone, but the idea of it stayed pretty much the same, and uh, it got us to the conclusion of the movie in a way that it needed to get to. It needed to get there faster. You know, it had to. The battle scenes
0: are phenomenal in this. So you tend to have this amazing talent of cutting battle scenes that, you know, keeps us geographically situated so we know where everything is, but also shows us the chaos. How do you approach Mm -hmm. editing battle scenes?
1: I do it exactly as you now described it. For me, I I don't understand battle scenes. Number one, I'm geographically challenged as a human being. So I tend to walk in circles to get to where I'm going. You know, everybody who follows my direction, says, you know, I could have just walked straight down this road and gotten to where you are. I said, oh, well, this is how I do it. And I, for some reason, I need that. In battles, if I don't know exactly where everybody is at some point, and that could be a recurring thing in a, in a battle, uh, I get uncomfortable because then I feel like it's all a big cheat. I call them truth shots, those, those wide shots that set up where everyone is. Once you have that happening, you can cut all over the place as long as you reorient the audience at another point to say now here's where everybody is and here's what's happening and I make really sure to do it so whenever I feel uncomfortable like I don't know where anybody's coming from uh, unless I don't have it I reorient as best I can but also I I like to play the battle scenes for me are are never just they're not a, a, a like um like a Michael Bay movie the battle itself becomes more important than the characters any of the movies I work on it's the how the battle affects the main character. That seems to me the most important part. So I try to have everything reflect off of the main character or refract or bounce, or I, I want to know what the main character is doing through all this stuff. So I understand. And so then you've got these two forces always at work orienting the audience and then orienting the audience to what the main characters is, is feeling and what he's doing. And if you can do that, I think battles are very, very satisfying. If you can't, it, it seems to be, You you seem to be like, okay, I guess this is just, uh, you know, this is what happens somehow. And I don't like that. (laughs) I've seen it in a lot of movies where they've done that. And to me, it's a lot of, when things are all in close up, I just get lost. I don't know what's happening. So I get bored.
0: Now, you mentioned before that, you know, Spartacus played a big role in your life. Uh, What was it about that film? And how has it influenced you as an editor?
1: Well... You know, okay, I'm going to backtrack just a little. I showed my, when my son was young, I showed him Spartacus on the um, TV. And it's a long, long movie. And, uh, you know, he was probably 15, 14. And at any point during the movie, I'd say, you like this? He said, yeah, it's okay. And 20 minutes later, you like this? Yeah, it's okay. You know, an hour and a half later, you like this? Yeah, it's okay. We get to the end of the movie when Spartacus is on the cross and his wife is grabbing onto his leg and, and I say to my son, Nick, You like this? And he's like, yeah, it's okay. And he's like in tears, you know. (laughs) That's Spartacus. That's the beauty of Spartacus. It's so emotional that there's never been a film in my lifetime like it as it impacted me. That's what I would hope Birth of a Nation would do. And certainly Braveheart, we've talked about in the past, is that's what it did. You know, it just did that. Probably not as good as Spartacus. I don't think that anything could be, but I think I was 12 when I saw Spartacus, so it might have <laughs> that meaning that, that is inherent in things you see when you're 12 or 13 or whatever. But I long for that, that bittersweet, you know, he's free Spartacus and he's, on you know, the across dying and, and and he's accomplished this for his kid. Could anything be richer than that? That's what I go for and, and I love in movies.
0: Now, I have one last question that I've I ask everyone I interview and we've discussed before and I've asked you before, but... I was gonna see if there's any new guilty pleasure films
1: for you that you like to watch. Ah, uh, a new one, yeah. Let me think, because uh, well, you know, I have I have many old ones. I, I probably mentioned these before. Like, I'm not even sure. I'm not sure. there's a uh, you know, like I can't turn if if Wonder Boys is on the tube, I cannot help but watch it. Um, but I'm, I'm I'm a new one. That's I seem to be seeing fewer movies these days. Was I watching uh, the other? "No" the other night it's not a new one again though. I was just turning through channels because I, you know, it gets late and I'm just there sitting watching a North by Northwest zone. So I watched the last forty minutes of that. Yeah, it's a great film, and it's you know it's it's great because it's so hugely entertaining. It's not meant to be super serious, and they don't make movies like that because yeah. who could be Cary Grant? There is no Cary Grant in the world anymore. He doesn't exist. There's lots of that stuff. I find myself strangely listening to some strange old music that I hadn't listened to in a while. Uh, I was listening, I've been listening to, I, I don't know if you know the group from, this is really going off base here, the group Small Faces from England prior to Rod Stewart being there, there was a group called Small Faces and I've been listening to some of their stuff again while I do my back exercises. It's like, I, you know, Apple music has somehow made the world <laughs> very accessible in, in all sorts of places and things that you have forgotten about. But movie-wise, you know, I don't know. Uh, if, if Local Hero is ever on the tube, I watch it. I think that probably corresponds to the last thing I said to you, whatever the last interview was. But, you know, I, I still seem to... I like those movies that are bittersweet. Okay.
0: Thank you so much for letting me interview you again.
1: Yeah, it's been a pleasure, Gordon, and hope things are good with you.
0: That was my interview with Stephen. If you haven't checked out the film, make sure to check it out before it leaves the theaters. I'd like to thank Stephen for allowing me to interview him. I'm your host, Gordon Burkell. Thanks for listening.